Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And this is part three of the episode, Anything for Love, the story of Tyler Marie Witt. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, we highly recommend that you start there. was a 14-year-old emo girl who didn't appreciate all of the good in her life, especially her mother. She met a boy, well, really a man, he was already 19 years old, and they got together despite Tyler's mother, Joanne, pointedly telling Stephen that she would not tolerate him making moves on Tyler. Despite the warning, Tyler and Stephen got together. They convinced Joanne to let Stephen move into her upscale home as a favor, Part of this convincing was them telling Joanne that Stephen was gay, which was at least partially true since his last relationship had been with a male, but he really seems to be, at the very least, bi. After a few peaceful months, Joanne discovered their secret sex room. She kicked Stephen out and told him she wouldn't have him charged with statutory rape if he would just leave her 14-year-old daughter alone. But Tyler was having none of that. She convinced Stephen to run away with her so they could kill themselves, and then they somehow decided Joanne had to die first. We ended part two with Tyler's version of the murder. Well, the version she used in court, at least. She had several versions. We'll begin this episode by sharing Boston's version of the murder. According to Starcrossed Killers, Boston's story is very different. He claims there was no murder plan. Tyler had called upset at her mother and begged him to sneak over to comfort her. He got off work and the plan was for him to wait in the schoolyard until Tyler could make sure the coast was clear for them to talk, which they would do a lot after Joanne had gone to sleep. He would sneak over to the fence. She would stay in her yard, go up to the fence, and they would talk and hug and kiss and have a little time together. Hmm. When he contacted her to make sure the coast was clear, Tyler told him to give her a minute. So he smoked and waited. They usually met at that back gate, like I was just saying. So he was surprised when she told him to come around to the side of the house. He says he was worried because of the statutory rape charge, but he complied. He claims he played with the dogs who were outside until Tyler appeared at the door, blood on her clothes, exclaiming, Boston, I did it. I finally did it. My mom is gone forever. She'd stabbed her mother to death after she told him to wait a minute. Explaining how his DNA ended up on Joanne's thigh was a bit of a challenge because all of the DNA evidence suggested it was a man who had killed her. Mm -hmm. He claimed Tyler took him upstairs to check out the body. Despite the 20 knife wounds, the blood, and the gaping hole in her neck, Boston claims he felt compelled to touch her thigh to ensure she was dead. 
He didn't really explain how his DNA ended up under her fingernails, though, other than a weak attempt at claiming that DNA touch transfer occurred when he pet her dogs outside. That makes no sense. That was his defense. <laughs> he, the defense makes no sense. <laughs> Actually, the DNA expert was the same one that O.J. Simpson used. So, no. if it does not fit, you must acquit, and the defense makes no sense. <laughs> Boston placed a SpongeBob blanket over Joanne's head, and Tyler suggested they shut the window and turn on the air conditioning to keep the smells from wafting out into the neighborhood. She was worried it would make the dogs bark. Tyler fetched her bag, and they left. Well, wait. If the bedroom window was open, wouldn't he have heard the ruckus going on in that bedroom while he was outside smoking and playing with dogs? You'd think so. That's what I was thinking about that open window. Well, so do you think Stephen's version is the truth? Nope. Well, why not? Well, first, because of the rule of thumb that we follow. Knowing that the prosecution and defense will always tell differing stories and that we weren't present for that trial, we believe the side that won in court. The jury gets the last say as far as our research goes. But also because they took the knife, that murder weapon, mm -hmm. that he'd stolen from work and disposed of it. Well, you don't throw out a knife if you didn't use it. Right, and you don't throw out a favorite knife if you didn't use it. Mm -hmm. And he confessed the murder and even showed their friend that bloody knife with Tyler in the room. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty guilty. Uh-huh. They slipped that knife down one of the storm drain slits that you see in the gutters of subdivisions. Didn't you say your dog almost went down one of those storm drains? <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. We were traveling and we stopped to let the dogs get out and do their doggy thing and Cece, who's no relation to the Cece in this story slipped by me as I tried to lasso her and put on her leash she leaped out of that car and headed for the grassy area and skidded to a halt barely avoiding a trip down the sewer drain <laughs> she's always a mess isn't she <laughs> she is she's a bad little psycho dog but yeah you don't throw away your favorite chef's knife that you admittedly became attached to while using it in your job as a cook if there's no need to do so. Right. He had a lot of knives in his car, too. He was, remember, a knife collector. Mm-hmm. So take and it for what it's worth. I knew there was a reason I never trusted those kids. Right. There's no reason to. <laughs> anyway, it appears they decided to make Boston's dad's house their home base. The home was mostly empty in anticipation of a cell. Remember, that's why he had moved in with her in the first place. His dad was also using the home as his home base, but he mostly stayed with his girlfriend, Bev. So, in essence, the home became shared for about 24 hours, but Stephen's dad wasn't aware of that. The kids could sneak in and get done what needed to be done while avoiding Stephen's dad if they were careful. Oh no, what needed to be done? Well, they were preparing to leave town. Remember, they wanted to go to San Francisco to kill themselves? Mm-hmm, so sure. they, <laughs> Yeah, so they knew they would be fugitives soon. Tyler suggested they needed to get rid of some evidence. At her suggestion, they both took a shower at Stephen's dad's house, and they used the fireplace to burn the bloody clothes. Oh. Mm-hmm. They slept in the library parking lot that night. 
the next morning, they did some shopping for the upcoming suicide trip. They bought black hair dye. I'm betting Tyler was dying to finally get to dye her hair black since her mother would never let her do that. Mm-hmm. And they stopped to buy Boston a new pair of gloves because he'd burned his. Well, that's silly. You don't need to buy a new pair of gloves if you're just going to go kill yourself. It kind of says that maybe they weren't that serious about suicide. Yeah, they don't sound very serious. Mm -mm. Well, they meandered over to their friend Matthew's house, and they dyed their hair while Matthew finished up his chores. They invited him to come hang out with them. Well, they insisted that they he come out and hang out with them at Stephen's dad's house. And, of course, Matthew went along. These were his friends, and there was the promise of fun. They were going to smoke a bit and do a few lines of coke. They bought drugs on the way back to the house. He wasn't expecting to hear the secret they were intent on sharing with him, though. Boston retrieved the still bloody knife from his car and had pulled it out of a plastic bag, saying, I killed Ty's mom. Wow. Tyler joined in the conversation, telling Matthew she had watched. Matthew was appalled. At trial, he said, it was so much not him. It was kind of shocking. He never struck me as someone who would do something like that. Matthew couldn't forget the look on Tyler's face as she told him she'd watched her mother die. The expected remorse and sorrow were, well, non-existent as she sat munching on her ramen noodles. Oh, how can you sit there eating while they talk about that? Especially when you've witnessed the murder. Yeah, you'd think that would make your stomach turn. Mm-hmm. Well, Matthew was having a difficult time processing all of this new information. But Boston's father suddenly showed up at the house with his girlfriend, wondering what they were doing there. Boston had quickly hidden both his drug case and the towel-wrapped knife when they heard his dad open the front door, so the conversation was over and the kids skedaddled. Boston's dad never knew that Tyler and he were an item. He was actually kind of surprised to learn the living arrangement had been extremely short-lived. When he asked Boston why it had ended, he told him he couldn't take it. Joanne's drinking problem was a huge issue, and he decided to just move out. So he also used Joanne as a scapegoat. Yeah. This surprised his dad at the time because of the assertion that she had a drinking problem the night of the dinner that wound up being completely false. But he was busy, and Boston was an adult, so he just didn't think there was anything he needed to follow up on. Upset at the news Tyler and Boston had shared with him, Matthew called a couple of their mutual friends and asked them to meet up at the local Safeway grocery store. He wanted to tell them what had happened, but he needed to do it in person. Maddie B. was one of those friends. He was beside himself upon hearing about the murder. He didn't wait. He called Boston from the Safeway payphone demanding, I want to know what you have to tell me. In court, Maddie B. testified he was beyond angry with Boston, exclaiming that some girl wasn't worth ruining his life over. The couple spent the next hour on the phone trying to justify what they had done to Maddie B. Boston saying they now needed to commit suicide so they could be together forever, and listening to Maddie B. act just like some nosy parent as he tried to convince them that killing themselves was insane. How had Tyler ever thought these people were dope? They were taking sides with her mother. So wait a minute, was Joanne ever actually an alcoholic? That seems to be stretching the truth by quite a bit. 
it actually is stretching the truth. By all accounts, except Tyler's and by extension Boston's, no. But Tyler seemed very vested in making her out to be an alcoholic. When you look at kids like this, they often do what's called impression management. Hmm, what is that? That's when a child will go around telling lies about their parents that put their parents in a bad light so that people will find them to be more sympathetic. That way the girl can start making everyone hate the mom and mm -hmm. siding with her. Oh, okay, she sounds like a politician, impression management. Well, she didn't say that, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very nice word for liar. It's more than lying because it's creating another facade, a facade that turns her into a damsel in distress often, or a princess in a castle. Girls like this often try to have a presenting problem when they're trying to get a boy to like them because they want them to feel like they need to save them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so impression management. They're, they're managing the impressions of others. Okay. So an alcoholic mom fits right into the basic playbook. Teens tend to believe what they're told about the parents, and we know that he was believing her. Once Boston moved in, I don't think he did, but it was easy to use, oh, she's an alcoholic, when Dad said, why didn't it work out? Because he didn't want to say, oh, because I got caught having sex with a 14-year-old. That's true. So he adopted some of that impression management strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, we've talked a lot about some pretty upsetting topics, but before we go any further, we'd like to do a quick shout-out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can call them at 1-800-273-8255. When you call this line, a trained crisis worker will listen to you, understand how your problem is affecting you, provide support, and share any resources that may be helpful. Remember, your call is confidential and free, but whether you feel comfortable calling the Lifeline for help or not, please choose life, and please, please seek help from a professional who can help you through this. Again, the number is 1-800-273-8255. San Francisco was supposed to be the scene of their double suicide. They wanted to do it on Monday. Upon arriving in San Francisco, they spent time shopping and hanging out in Chinatown. They also upgraded their hotel. The first one wasn't that great, so they checked into a Holiday Inn. I wonder where they were first if Holiday Inn was the upgrade. I know. <laughs> Actually, they left their car and it was towed, which we get to later, and it was in the Tenderloin District, so maybe there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not a great place. Anyway, they spent June 13th, Saturday afternoon, high, writing suicide notes to mail to their friends. And speaking of friends, Tyler lost another one. She'd signed into MySpace to see what was going on, and Boston's friend Eddie slid into her DMs. Earlier in the month, she'd asked Eddie, through her MySpace account, if he could help her get hold of some arsenic. He'd asked her why. Are you planning to kill your mother? And she replied, just kidding. His exchange with her this time was much less laid back. You sicken me beyond measure. You really killed her? He asked. I didn't say that, she replied. 
Now she's gone. I'm weeping, but I'm free. This started a fight, and Tyler took it all public on her MySpace page. When everything was said and done, Eddie stared at the scene for a minute and then downloaded the conversation for the police. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I think Eddie is one of the more mature boys in that group. He and Maddie B. Yeah. They reacted a little bit more humanly to this. They absolutely did. Anyway, Tyler even wrote a seven-page story in Boston's notebook chronicling the sordid but romanticized details of their relationship. Of course, this story was about a rather average boy who fell in love with a smart and beautiful 14-year-old. So, at least some of this story is fictionalized, right? (laughs) Yes. It culminates with the boy murdering the drunk of a mother to save the girl and allow her to forever after be free with the boy. But free is a subjective term since the lovers commit suicide together after the murder. I hunted down part of Tyler's actual story, but it was so poorly written I decided to just tell you what it said rather than make you suffer through the actual story. (laughs) Well, I guess she was only 14. Very true. Stephen had tucked the letter he'd written to his mother in his car. The police found it after the arrest on Wednesday, June 17th. That's jumping ahead a little bit here. In it, he had thanked his mother for instilling a sense of moral justice in him and expressed regret for not appreciating her when he had the chance. He expressed his wish that he had been a better son, but said he was totally committed to his love for Tyler, saying, quote, I could go to hell and back for her, bear eternal damnation just to be with her and know she is happy. He ended the note, saying his suicide proved the world was stronger than him. To a friend, he wrote, Our sins are so unforgivable for so many, so we will be waiting in the afterlife. They're still so dramatic. Indeed. Tyler wrote a suicide note to her mother. Knowing her dead mother would never seen or read it, one must suppose it was for dramatic effect or to be used as evidence. As usual, it was completely dramatic and accusatory. You, mother, made me a whore to the man I love. She also declared that her mother could no longer get in the way of her forbidden love and that she was planning to spend eternity with Stephen as death swept them away. Back to Sunday, June 14th. Wow, she just can't even let her mother rest now. She's already dead. Leave her alone. I know. It's pretty awful when you know that your mother's dead because you participated in her murder and you can't just stop. Mm-hmm. Back to Sunday. On June 14th, they slept in and they did some more sightseeing. Late Sunday evening, they each concocted their own suicide mix of junk food using the tools in Boston's drug case to crush the rat poison pellets before adding them to their food. The concoctions contained Fruit Loops, Red Velvet Cake, Milk, Rat Poison, Whipping Cream, and Nesquik Cocoa. They set an alarm, saying if they heard the alarm go off, they'd failed at suicide. They ate it, but they didn't die. Stephen got pretty sick, but they didn't die. I kind of suspect Tyler had no intention of dying. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I mean, if you eat rat poison, if you eat enough of it, You die, and it's very suspicious that she didn't get super sick. Yeah, and I know he didn't get extremely ill because 
They got up and got dressed and headed out for more fun. So probably tummy problems or something. Hmm. So what did they decide to do instead of killing themselves? Well, they walked around and shopped and talked about alternative ways to kill themselves. They talked about using razor blades, but darn, the blades weren't sharp enough. Then they considered jumping off the roof of the Holiday Inn together, but the ledge was too narrow. They would have to jump one after the other, and that didn't seem very romantic. Plus, Tyler said she was afraid of heights, so that really didn't do. The suicide failures sighed, packed their things up, and headed back to the car to head on home, or wherever. But the car, which, like I said, had been parked and left in the Tenderloin District, Mm -hmm. had been towed. They loitered, they caught some Z's in a graveyard on the night of the 15th, and meandered toward their fate. Things were heating up against their favor at home. Can I just say, if you're in San Francisco and you want to commit suicide, there's kind of like this large bridge that's really easy to jump off of? It's not as easy now. They've put in some anti-suicide equipment. But Boston was into knives. They should have had a few knives with them. Boston always had some kind of knife on him or in his trunk. He had a katana sword that he kept in his trunk all the time. Well, I'm sure that even though they thought that stabbing was a good enough death for Joanne, they didn't want to deal with that pain. Again, I don't think they were intending on dying. Me neither. On June 15th, Joanne's co-workers were worried. They knew about all of the drama happening at her house and that she'd been worried for her safety when she made Boston move. They knew Tyler had physically attacked her the month before her murder. Joanne's friends asked the police to conduct a well check, and, well, that's where this episode began. The heartbreaking story of how Joanne Witt's father realized his beloved daughter was gone. Because Tyler was missing, and because of Tyler's past attitudes and threats toward her mother, the police immediately suspected her in this murder. They put out an all-points bulletin on the couple. Over 100 miles away, an off-duty policeman in San Bruno received an APB and noticed a young couple matching their description, sharing a kiss in front of the AT&T store before heading toward the Red Lobster's dumpster area. He followed them and found them as they were changing their clothes. And, just like that, they were in custody. Wow, arrested in the Red Lobster dumpster. Quite the glamorous love story. Yeah. The couple was taken to the police station and placed in separate interrogation rooms. Their hotel room and already impounded car were searched, wherein a couple of extra suicide notes, such as the one that Boston had written to his mother, drugs, and condoms were confiscated. Tyler agreed to be interviewed after being read her Miranda rights. The investigators asked Tyler to narrate her version of what happened last Thursday. She told them she and Boston had decided they didn't want to live there anymore. They decided to go to San Francisco and try to kill themselves. But their suicide attempt didn't work, and then their car got towed, so they decided to just walk around. A bit surprised at what Tyler had skimmed over, the investigators asked her to step her narration back to discuss Thursday specifically. And Tyler responded, Here, I'm going to have you read what she said. 
I called him maybe around midnight. He came to my house and I packed up some stuff in my bag, mostly just stuff I already had on. We hopped the back fence to my house and we went up to the school that's right next to my house and we went to the parking lot and got in his car. Further questioning led to Tyler clarifying her narration. She'd spent her morning in summer school. Her mother had dropped her there in the morning and picked her up at 12.30 when classes ended. Joanne had taken her daughter home and returned to work. Tyler said she spent her day calling Boston. That is what she called Stephen. Tyler continued, saying her mother had returned home late at 6.30. Together, they'd gone to the grocery store and the gas station. Tyler had been upset because when her mom picked her up at 12.30, they'd had a bit of a fight. What was the fight about? The investigator pressed. Tyler had replied, She wanted me to talk to a detective about something Boston supposedly had done, and I didn't want to talk to the detective because it wasn't true and I didn't want her pressing it. We got into a fight, and then we went to our separate corners. We cool off and come back and talk about it later. She went back to work after the fight. I just kind of sat at home. I think that's interesting that as things heat up, Joanne always talks to her, and they take time to think before they actually say something they might regret. Yeah, that sounds like a good strategy, but it doesn't seem like it worked very well. No, good logical parenting doesn't often work for some of these kids. Yeah, I think they're called erratic for a reason. Right, because she does fall in the erratic category. Mm -hmm. The investigators asked her if the fight was over her diary. She said yes. They did not return to the subject of the diary. Tyler mentioned her mother drank that night, continuing her narrative to make people think that her mother was an alcoholic, and said her mother went to bed sometime around 7.30 p.m. Tyler said she started calling Boston at around 10. She said they had to wait until her mom was in a deep enough sleep that they could leave without the dog waking her mom. Stephen arrived at the home just before midnight. Tyler mentioned Stephen would come to the house via the back fence to avoid detection by her mom. We've talked about this a little bit before. Mm -hmm. She said if he'd come to the front of the house, her mother could check the gate code and know what time he'd been there. According to Tyler, they went to Stephen's dad's house after leaving her house. There, they each took a shower, and then they left and slept in the library parking lot. The next morning, they bought some groceries and some hair dye. Then they dyed their hair. No mention of killing her mother. None. That's so weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Is she going to pretend like she didn't have any idea? Well, yes. Why do you think she wrote a suicide note to her mother? Ah, okay. That makes more sense. She's pretending like he just secretly did that while she was packing? Yeah, that's evidence, again, that this was not what she was presenting it as. No. Tyler continued her narration, telling the investigators they'd made their way to San Francisco where they'd eaten some rat poison, but it didn't work, so they decided they would just hang out. The investigators asked Tyler if they'd reached out to anyone prior to their suicide attempts. She stated they'd each contacted a best friend. Stephen had called Maddie B., and she had called Matthew. She also mentioned the letters they'd mailed to their friends. Still, no mention of her dead mother. (laughs) This is pretty manipulative. 
Detective Lansing directly asked, Okay, let's get down to the point. Why are you here? And Tyler, nonplussed, answered, Because I tried to run away. <laughs> the detective confronted her with the murder of her mother. Tyler feigned shock and cried out, What? My mom is dead? Tyler gave quite a performance at that point, sobbing, shaking, exclaiming shock and disbelief. Dead? She can't be dead. More histrionics, and then she quickly moved to, I want an attorney. I want you gone. How dare you? Then more hysterical crying. Mommy, 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 you're not dead. No, no. You get the picture. The detectives knew it was an act. Yeah, that's pretty thin. Mm-hmm. The kids were sent back to El Dorado Hills to face the music. And this is where true love, built on five months of lying, doing drugs, murdering Joanne, and running away, quickly crumbled into fairy tale dust. It appears Angel Sanctuary was correct. The forbidden love ends with both of them back in the world of the living for the end of the story. So what happened once the kids got back home? Well, Tyler's initial plea was not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay, that makes sense. I have a demon inside of me. Mm -hmm. I'm crazy. People have been trying this for a long time, and usually the I was just possessed by a demon is not a good defense. <laughs> yeah. Get an attorney. Mm-hmm. She eventually pled guilty to first-degree murder with enhancements for lying in wait and killing a witness in a plea deal and was immediately sentenced to 25 years to life. The agreement was that once she testified against Stephen, the first-degree conviction would be adjusted to a second-degree conviction, the enhancements would both be dropped, and her sentence would be adjusted to 15 years to life. Is it typical in a plea deal to make the person who made the plea agreement be convicted and sentenced for the bigger sentence prior to the trial that will get everything dropped? I don't think it is. This seemed unusual to me. I'm not sure why it was done this way. Yeah, I thought that was unusual, too. Maybe they did this in case she didn't really cooperate at Stephen's mm -hmm. trial. I'm not really sure. That would make sense. I guess part of the plea deal is they wouldn't have her trial after his mm -hmm. as leverage. So they needed some kind of leverage to make sure that she complied with the plea agreement. Yeah, and this case was kind of interesting because there was a whole hoopla over whether they'd be tried in the same trial or in separate trials. It was really complicated, just procedurally. Yeah, I know his attorney wanted the trial separated, and her attorney wanted the trial together. Would there be benefit to having the trial together? I think it just really depends on what story they think they can paint for the jury, of whether um. she's a manipulative little girl, or whether he's, you know, a child abuser and groomed her for this. Mm-hmm. Um... I'm not really sure. Okay. But she also faced unrelated charges of battery resulting from an incident in May when Tyler attacked Joanne with a knife and for possession of stolen property. Wow. Yeah, she was really very violent before the murder. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but those charges appear to have been bundled into the plea deal or maybe they were dropped altogether as part of the deal, but they didn't move forward with them either way. That would make sense. Yeah, so... So did she comply? She did. As agreed, she testified against Stephen Boston, Mm -hmm. but her testimony was a little bit surprising. This was the forum Tyler chose to publicly announce that she shared her body with Toby, the demon from hell who lurked inside of her, and Alex, her inner angel. Oh, wow. Yeah. She announced that Stephen had helped her manage these three entities and that the thought of losing him had driven her to the murder suggestion. She somehow decided this made the murder of her mother okay. It does not. Yeah, it kind of sounds like, well, you know, I have a hard time managing my conscience, and so it's okay to murder my mom because he was really good at helping me not have to deal with my own internal struggles. He obviously wasn't very good at helping her if she murdered her mother. No, and if anything, he really favored Toby because he had her very hooked into drugs. I can't imagine that Alex, the inner angel, would be approving of that. Oh, I think the inner angel is the one that Boston was supposed to love and cherish and worship. Oh. Because he would call her goddess and remember Angel Sanctuary. That's so cringy. It's real cringy. Anyway, I don't think it's a good argument. Nobody else seems to have thought it was a good argument. But she also decided this was a good time to start claiming that her mother would get violent with her, which is surprising given the knife charges against her mother that Uh, she had. Yeah, wait a minute. Every time even Boston was saying that she would come up against these situations where most parents say, I would lose my cool. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, I need to take a ride. Stay here. I'll be back. Mm -hmm. I need to go to my safe place and think about this for a minute. Well, we have that 911 call, too, where she's beating her mother up. Like, I think it's really clear who was violent in this relationship Uh and who was using some pretty classic tactics of abuse. And it certainly wasn't Joanne. No, because she still was being very calm, even in that phone call. Yeah. And Tyler wasn't breathing heavily, wasn't upset while she was making the phone call. But the moment her mom came on, she was in the background screaming like she'd lost her mind. Yeah, which is just classically abusive. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, which is really shocking when you think about it. Like, how do you end up in a situation where a 14-year-old is abusive? Um, I think it's very unexpected, but this isn't the first time we've seen it. No, it's not. It has to do a lot with personality, I think. Yeah, and I think that's one of the questions we're still trying to answer. Well, we do understand it a little bit. What we've noticed in the research is that a lot of parenting mismatches occur. Mm. So it's like we don't know who Tyler's father is. But genetically, I would bet that he was someone who would fit well in the military or someone who was very type A, very um, assertive to aggressive, Mm -hmm. would be my best guess someone who would control situations yeah and joanne is very acquiescent very quiet very let me go away and think about this yeah and tyler was very in your face yeah and it seems that when we have a parent child imbalance we see a lot of abuse flipped 
where the child is abusing the parent and we do see the child killing the parent. Yeah. And sometimes it's the parent who was the dominant parent has died mm-hmm. or they've divorced or for whatever reason that parent has gone away and that's the parent who typically not in this case but has typically kept that child in line because we have different people in this world we have tigers and we have dogs and if a tiger marries a dog which a lot of times a man will marry a woman who's more acquiescent than he is Mm -hmm. then if they have a tiger child the tiger dad will teach that child how to socialize properly and how to be a good person within the world. Mm-hmm. But if they're missing and they have the acquiescent mom who's not recognizing what's happening, mm-hmm. then you get a whole different picture. Yeah, and the dynamic she had with the tiger man she was in love with won't be effective with the tiger child. Right. It's a different dynamic entirely. That right. kind of makes sense. Right, because the tiger man has been socialized by his tiger parent. Mm-hmm. And it's not that tiger parents are bad or good. Our society needs all types of people. It's that a parent who sees themselves in a child will know how to help socialize that child to be a good person. Yeah. So back to the kind of criminal proceedings. Serving 80% of her sentence would mean that Tyler's first parole hearing would have been in 2021. And parole was denied, and she was told she could try again in three years. That parole hearing is tentatively scheduled for January of 2024. I guess her jail cell is pretty crowded since she has to share with Toby and Alex and probably (laughs) a human roommate, right? Right. (laughs) So what about Boston or Stephen? Well, during his trial, Stephen held fast to his story that Tyler had texted him to wait a couple of minutes and then met him at the door, like, covered in blood, and proclaimed that she had done the job herself. Her mother was dead and kind of celebrated and been all excited. Mm -hmm. But it came out at trial that he also had a journal, and he wrote, I loved Tyler goddess Marie Witt with all my heart. I would bear eternal damnation just to be with her. Hmm. He won't be required to do that exactly, that we know of. But he was convicted of first-degree murder with two special circumstances. Lying in wait and killing a witness. So, instead of losing his own life, he lost a meaningful portion of it. He was sentenced to life without parole. So... I hope that he meant it, because he is paying a high price. Yes. Has he ever appealed? He has appealed. It was not effective. Okay. I think that once you actually get to the point where you're losing your life for something like this, you find that you really don't want to. I think so. Um, What about Tyler's grandparents? I know that her grandfather was obviously involved in finding Joanne. So, her grandparents obviously were heartbroken and really struggling with what to do now because they've lost their daughter. They've lost their granddaughter for at least the next few years. But at some point, she's going to get out, and it sounds like they've really struggled with what to do. And It sounds like her grandfather has kind of made his peace with her and kind of, he said something along the lines of, This is not the girl that I know. 
and this is not my granddaughter. Um, I'm not really interested in a relationship with this person. And her grandmother was a little less comfortable going that far. But I'm hoping that they found some peace and don't feel compelled to try and take care of her after what she took from them. I do too. It's really sad, but I think sometimes the healthiest thing to do is to acknowledge that your family is not going to recover from this. Yeah, I hope that they make some decisions that work out and work out for them. Me too. Whatever they choose. It's such a sad story. It is, and it's very hard for the survivors to decide what to do because the person who killed their family member is a family member. You know, someone that they've loved their whole life. Right. And like we've said before, when a child commits parasite, there are many more victims than just the parent who dies. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's time to thank a few people, right? Okay. We'd like to thank Jade Brown, of course, for the music. And we'd like to thank the Sacramento Bee, the Modesto Bee, the Reno Gazette Journal, My Life of Crime, Star-Crossed Killers by Robert Scott, and Dream and Demon for a host of information and pictures that we use to bring you this episode. We'd like to send our deepest and most sincere thanks to our most recent contributors to the Parasite Prevention Institute. Your support means the world to us, Dr. Auer, Katie, and Mark. If you're interested in doing something priceless to help our show, please follow and review the Parasite Podcast wherever you listen. Follow the Parasite Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and share our show with two of your favorite podcast listeners. Those three things are incredibly valuable. And while you're at it, do it for another podcast you enjoy. That's it for now. This episode is dedicated to Meatloaf, who supplied everyone with solid tunes and solid advice for decades. May we meet you on the other side.